Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. If I could bring everyone to order, welcome to our seminar today. The title, Does India Matter? Quite a provocative title, and as Ian points out in, in his blurb for today's seminar, title uh, borrowed, shall we say, from the late uh, Jerry Siegel. Plagiarised. What's that? Plagiarised. Plagiarised. That's well, the word I'd use. He uses the word. Plagiarised from the late Jerry Siegel, who wrote a very provocative article Entitled, of course, Does China Matter? Ian is going to ask that question today in relation to Asia's other rising great power. Ian, in some ways, needs no introduction, uh, but I'm still going to introduce you. Ian has quite a prolific publishing background, and in that spirit, next year, forthcoming publication with the University of California Press, Dilemmas of Decline, British Intellectuals and World Politics, 1945-1975. And Ian recently has published a number of pieces on India's rise, uh, not just in scholarly outlets, but also in uh, print uh, and is featured in electronic media as an expert commentator on on India's rise. Um, So, without any further ado, I'll hand over to Ian. Okay, thank you very much. Jerry Siegel's article will be familiar, I suspect, to most of you in the room. Back in an article in Foreign Affairs in 1999, he asked the question, does China matter? Um, And his answer was that China matters. Of course it matters. It matters for the Chinese, not least. But it matters for the rest of us too, but not quite in the way that we think it does and not as much as uh, we think it, it might do. So his point was to say that China was for the foreseeable future, remember this was 11 years ago, was going to remain a second rank uh, military power, it was going to remain a far less profitable market than many Westerners thought, and it was going to remain a negligible source of innovative ideas. It was rarely going to serve as a model for others. Others were not going to look to China and say, what a wonderful political system, let's have that. And they were not going to take innovative ideas about you know, products or ideas, brands and so on. China was not going to be a source of those things. The United States and other states were going to remain a source of those kinds of things. So with due apologies to Siegel, this paper poses the same question of India. But we get there's a slightly different starting point and there's a slightly different conclusion. The starting point is different because we don't see anything like the levels of hyperbole about the about India that we do about China. There are not great Sinophiles out there writing huge amounts of material, publishing lots of books and articles in important journals, and there are not large numbers of uh, not large numbers of Indio phobes. So we, there are Sinophiles and Sinophobes publishing many many things, but there's just not the same volume on India. The other point to make about it is that it's not as divided. It's much more lukewarm about India, generally speaking, with a few exceptions. There are a couple of exceptions of great India enthusiasts, but most people seem to accept that, yes, India is rising, yes, it's sort of important, yes, it's probably benign, and it will probably do good, more good things than bad things, but it's not really something we should worry about too much. India is just not that important. I want to, um, to evaluate some of those arguments and I want to reach a slightly different conclusion. I think that India is actually more important than we think it is, rather than, as Jerry Siegel argued, that China was less important than we thought it was. I think India is more important, but not quite for the reasons that we think. And I'm going to go through and do essentially what Siegel did, which is to look at uh, India's, look at the economy, the military, the political sector, and then I'm going to look at the diplomatic area, and India's diplomatic importance, where I think India really does matter in a way that it doesn't in the other sectors. Okay, so let me start off and say 
basically I'll just give you the punchline. In economic, I'll do, and you can all leave if you want to at that point. <laughs> um, in economic terms, yes, India has enormous potential, but there are very significant pitfalls, and I'll run through some of those. In military terms, India has a very large military, and it has an increasingly well-equipped military, but it has a military which is probably not capable of doing much more than it already does, which is to say that it deals with internal security issues of which it, India has many. It deters Pakistan. It doesn't really deter China, but it might hold the line if it had to. And it engages in uh, peacekeeping and stabilization operations and observer missions and so on, and plays a very important role, in fact, in, in that area. So in military terms, we're not really going to see a huge amount of change. It's in the political terms that there's an interesting question to be asked. There are some people who think that, and the great enthusiasts think, that India can play the kind of role that the United States has done over the last century or so. Not just that it can be a major um, military and economic player, but that it can be a beacon to the world. And specifically, it can be a beacon to Asia of democracy, of um, the rule of law, and so on. There are some people who argue not just that, as Farid Zakaria has argued, that, that India can be the ally to the challenger, that is China, but also that, that India can be a bigger, even bigger, uh, even better United States, a vibrant, um, democratic state and, and a model to others. I'm not sure that I quite buy that argument, and I'll try and explain why. Where India, I think, does matter and where it needs to be taken much more seriously, particularly in this country but also elsewhere, is in diplomatic terms. Not so much because its weight has given it real diplomatic power, in fact it hasn't, but because it has been handed a particular diplomatic role on a plate, mainly by the United States, but by other powers too. It's been elevated beyond its own weight um, earlier than perhaps it should have been. And that means that it's allowed to play a role as a veto player in critical areas of global governance, particularly in global trade, but also, as we saw in the Copenhagen negotiations at the end of last year, it's been allowed to play an important role in things like the climate change uh, discussions that have been ongoing. So it's important because it's been given a role to play. And then the next point is whether it actually wants to play that role. So it's been given this role to play, but I'm not sure that it actually wants to play the role that it's been given. And I'm not sure it's going to behave in the way that the United States in particular thinks that it's going to behave. And the reason why I think that is because there's a very substantial, ongoing, major, fractious, difficult um, debate going on within India itself about the kind of role that India wants to play and should play in global affairs. Now, the Americans think big power, big power ought to act like this. The predictions all point in that direction. Our theories all point in that direction. All of the things that Indians talk about like being the conscience keeper of the world, and the famous line that an Indian diplomat used recently, are all just irrelevant fluff, essentially. And in the end, India will see that it should act like any other great power does. Now, the question is, will it? Will it actually fulfill that role? Will it actually step up in the way that the Americans think it will? And will it actually uh, produce the kinds of benefits that the Americans in particular think that it will? I don't think this is a frivolous or inconsequential question to ask, does India matter? I think it's an important one to ask because we need to understand whether, how it matters if we're going to engage with it properly and we're going to um, bring it in and involve it in things that we think are important. 
So if we think, for example, that climate change is important and an international agreement is important, then some work, well, a lot of work needs to be done to persuade Indians that the current way of thinking about climate change is a good one because there's a great deal of scepticism in, in India about whether the, the, this scheme actually is a good scheme. Okay, so it doesn't matter economically. That's the first thing to ask. Obviously, what we've seen is quite dramatic economic growth in India. Back in 2003, if you look at the famous BRICS report on Brazil, Russia, India, and China that Goldman Sachs produced, there was a prediction then in 2003 that the Indian economy would grow at an average of 5 to 6% over the next 30 to 50 years. At the time, this looked very optimistic, and it was actually poo-pooed by lots of people. But in retrospect, it may actually have sold India short. In, 2000, in the, in the mid-2000s, India produced annual growth rates of uh, 7%, over 6%, and a peak rate of 9.7% in 2006-07, before the global financial crisis. But since that crisis, we've not really seen any major lowering of the rate of growth. So we've seen, in fact, a figure of 8.8% recorded in the, the last quarter of 2000, and, sorry, the third quarter of 2010, 8.8% GDP growth. So we're seeing much more dramatic economic growth than we might have seen uh, in the past. And I'll just give you the you know, some of the things, just to give you an indication. So what you can see then on the, on the left-hand side there is just um, the real GDP growth. That's, those are official figures coming from the government of India. And what you can see there is rising from the early 1990s, when India was in some significant crisis, had balance of payments problems and so on, um, through to the late 2000s, up to 2008, where you can see this is increasing to, you know, close to 8 to 9%, close to 9% growth. Now, that's not that dramatic by Chinese standards, and I don't know how well you can see the, the graph at the top right there, but that shows Chinese growth and Indian growth plotted against each other, and you can see that China is consistently about 2% higher than India, and the trends, both of them are trending up, so it seems that there's a constant um, difference of about 2%. And you can see down at the bottom there, you probably can't see actually, the yellow line is China's uh, predicted growth up to... Uh, 2050 and India's against the United States. So the prediction being that China will uh, get up to 60-70% of the US economy by I think the figures on there are 2050 and India is going to be about 25% of the US economy by that point. So those figures are disputable but they kind of give, they're indicative of quite dramatic economic growth and that's got some people very excited as you can imagine um, because uh, for a whole variety of different reasons. But let's just pour a little bit of cold water on all of this, as of course Siegel does with Chinese economic growth. In 2008, India's per capita GDP was only just over $1,000, 1,000 US dollars, 1,017 US dollars. And that's considerably behind China's, which is, was at that time $3,200. It's on a rough par, in other words, with Djibouti, not known as an economic powerhouse, uh, Nicaragua, or Uzbekistan. That's kind of where we are. Now, even if you adjust those figures to reflect purchasing power, and obviously, as I found out when I was in Delhi at the beginning of this year, things are extraordinarily cheap. You can just walk into a normal shop and buy a packet of biscuits. You go and buy them in the hotel, it's ten times more. That's just an obvious kind of observation, but purchasing power obviously matters in this context. So if you adjust it for purchasing power parity, what you find is that uh, gross national income on a purchasing power basis comes out at about $3,000 in 2008, but it's still comparable with Cape Verde, uh, Guyana, Moldova. So again, you know, we're not talking about 
a major economic superpower. Now, given that India is home to 40% of the world's poorest people, these figures are not that surprising. What's also not very impressive is India's performance in the Human Development Index, which the UN obviously produces every year. In 2009, India was at 134th, and that's a considerable distance between, behind China, which sits at 92. That comparison matters to some degree, but probably what's more important is the fact that China has consistently climbed up. Its um, human development numbers have improved at higher than the general rate of improvement. So China has climbed up the table, whereas India has pretty much stayed in the same place since the early 1990s. It's, things have got better in India, but they haven't got better at a, a, a higher rate than anywhere else. So, again, a bit of cold water on all of this. And there are other problems, too. What we see are still great, significant problems on education and literacy. There are private providers coming into the market as they deregulate the, the education sector to some degree. There are private pro providers coming in, private schools being set up, private primary schools in particular, and literacy rates are rising, but they're not rising arguably fast enough. The crux here is as that population gets older and there's a large number of people come into the labour market between now and now in 2030 or so, they need to be literate if they're going to take up reasonable paying jobs. But we're not seeing uh, improvement in education as fast as we might hope, despite, as I say, considerable action by central government and now a mandate that the state governments themselves have to act as well. They have to provide free education for uh, everybody at the primary level. So, judged by any indi indicator, then, India remains very much at the early stages of its economic development. It's got too many problems in terms of infrastructure, government capacity, can't mobilize labor, can't mobilize people in the same way as China can, has nowhere near the powers of compulsion that the Chinese can, can use. It has incredible problems with the development of its human capital, illustrated by the problems of literacy and education, and it has very big problems with energy security. So in economic terms, India is going to lag quite a lot. In military terms, to if we move on to that, we see a similar kind of story. India is in a very odd, paradoxical position. In terms of the amount of military power at its disposal, it is clearly preponderant in its own uh, region. It's clearly preponderant in South Asia. The army has 1.1 million people, uh, the 1.325 uh, military personnel in total, if you include the army, the navy, and the air force. You've got a growing navy. It's got the only aircraft carrier in the region. Uh, albeit one that's being refitted at vast expense by the Russians. It's got nuclear power submarines. It's also got these wonderful missiles that I had on the front there of uh, these BrahMos missiles developed with the Russians. Um, it's a supersonic cruise missile that can be launched from submarines, from ships, from the air, and from the ground. And you can use them against fixed targets, and you can use them against ships. And they are quite an extraordinary kind of weapon, particularly if you take into consideration the great China, Indian uh, strategic anxiety about the Indian Ocean, which is that China will put a large fleet in the Indian Ocean sometime in the next 15 to 20 years. I think the Indian calculation is why spend vast amounts of money on a large surface fleet when you can spend less money on supersonic cruise missiles that could destroy that Chinese Navy uh, if you need to fairly quickly. Okay, so does it matter economically? No. I said no, because all of these things are the case. Does it matter militarily? 
Well, we've got an army of 1.1 million, and we've got the only aircraft carrier, and we've got nuclear-powered submarines. And the defence budget has increased quite substantially um, as the Indian economy has expanded over the, last, over the last 20 years or so. In 1988, the Indian defence budget was roughly about $11 billion. It's now up to about 27, probably about $30 billion. But this actually represents a decline in the proportion of GDP being spent on defence. The expectation is that there's, or the, the view from outside is often that India is very worried about the risk of war with Pakistan, the risk of serious conflict with China. And yet what we see here is, although we've seen an increase in the military budget, we've actually seen a decline in terms of percentage of GDP. And that, I think, sends some kind of an indication of what's going on here. In essence, the view on this has got to be the same as, um, as Bill Emmett's, you know, the um, former editor of The Economist. His argument is that China and India are engaged less in an arms race as a strategic insurance policy race. They're insuring themselves against particular kinds of threats that they think are serious, but they're not investing in the kinds of militaries which give them serious offensive capabilities. So they're trying to insure themselves against certain kinds of emergent threats without investing the kinds of money that we might see being invested to give them an offensive capability. And that's important, I think, because there are unresolved territorial and other issues between the Chinese and the Indians, and there are obviously unresolved issues between India and Pakistan, which perhaps need to be dealt with. So India shows no great signs of seeking to disrupt the regional status quo in South Asia, or by engaging in rapid build-up of particular kinds of weapons, withstanding these supersonic cruise missiles, which are really deterrent more than anything else. Nor, rather, what we're seeing is India hedging against possible threats that may emerge, asymmetric conflict with, with Pakistan, significant problems within India with um, insurgency, not just uh, Islamic militancy, but also Naxalite, Maoist insurgency that we're seeing spreading through a lot of uh, eastern India. And indeed, Naxalite insurgency, the Maoist insurgency, succeeded in killing more of the security forces and more civilians this year than any uh, Islamist or any uh, other kinds of militants have within India. So they are a very serious threat to Indian, the Indian state at the moment. So we need not worry too much about India as a military power. It's significant, but it's not, going to, it's not changing in a very dramatic way. Does India matter politically? And this is, I think, where really interesting questions are. It is, after all, the world's biggest democracy, and one in which the democratic system appears, in broad terms, notwithstanding the Maoist insurgency, to be relatively stable and relatively legitimate. So it ought to hold great appeal, not just to the West, but also to its Asian neighbours. India also has substantial reserves of, other, of soft power, and a lot gets made of Indian soft power, and that's something that I want to just evaluate now. It has soft power deriving from many sources. Firstly, India's great cultural heritage to the region itself, uh, Buddhism and so on. Uh, all of these great cultural, this great, great cultural heritage could potentially be played upon and could be a great resource on which India could pull. It also has a great tradition of a principal stance in the anti-colonial movement, for example, in which it played a very important role from the mid-1912 from the late 1940s onwards, and of course prior to that, in the anti-colonial movement before independence. Then there's all the other contributions to global popular culture, food, art, music, Bollywood movies, literature, and so on. All of those things matter, all of that soft power is considerable, and all of those assets could, in theory at least, be leveraged to give India more clout than it could have <coughs> elsewhere. Problems here are twofold. 
One is we actually see quite mixed views of India from outside, both from in the region itself and from people within the United States and in Western Europe. And that's partly, I want to suggest, to do with the perceptions of corruption, the problems of intercommunal violence, the problems uh, of poverty and so on, which still are residual drags on India's soft power. The other issue here is about Indian diplomacy and its capacity to make use of this soft power. Indian diplomacy has an extraordinary reputation for being very negative. Uh, just say no is seen to be the general rule of Indian diplomacy. Any agreement that comes up, the Indians will negotiate, 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 and then say no, eventually. Uh, and they say no for a bunch of reasons that I'll, I'll, maybe I'll get onto if you want me to, but um, I don't want to dwell on them too much. Now, if you look at the Pew Research Center's work uh, on foreign public opinion, what we see is that attitudes to India are very mixed. Indians believe themselves to be increasingly influential in world affairs. Indeed, the last poll that was done showed that Indians think, them to themselves, think themselves the second most influential country in the world after the United States. That's, that kind of egotism actually is pretty common amongst all states. Um, if you ask British people, they think, think the same thing. If you ask Australians, they might not say the second, but they'd certainly put themselves in the top five or six. Um, okay. If you, when, when they polled the rest of the world, the other countries, the nine, nine countries, they found that feelings towards India were, were rather, were, sorry, that they, they, they all listed India as the least influential state in the world of the, the nine or ten that were polled. However, Everybody else felt fairly warm, rather warm, that's the term that gets used, towards India except the Americans, who were worried about their jobs, essentially being outsourced to Bangalore and, and elsewhere. India's rise as an economic and military power are considered a positive development by significant majorities. If 56% of Chinese people polled, for example, said that India's military rise was a good thing, and the same proportion thought India's economic rise was good too. There was also support for India's bid for the UN Security Council seat, especially from Americans, uh, 53% of whom were, were in favour. Set against these benign opinions, however, what we see are some less flattering perceptions. Only in Australia did a majority, 68%, expressed the view that India could be trusted to act responsibly in the world. Amongst Chinese respondents, only 45% thought that India could oh, sorry, 45% thought that India could not be trusted at all. In, amongst Americans, 53% thought that India could not be trusted. So we've got this kind of odd sense in which we've got quite a lot of potential soft power, and yet actually quite negative perceptions here. Why is this? Well, we see some successful actions on the part of the Indian government to try and improve their image. Their tourism campaign, Incredible India, is one of the best known um, around. So the nation branding works quite, quite well. And in fact, amongst global elites, the sorts of people who are willing to go and spend large amounts of money touring around deserts or visiting you know, historic sites and so on, India has a very good brand. I'm quite interested in this branding stuff, actually. And there's an agency called Future Brand that does a country brand index. India has the, best, the fifth best brand in the Asia-Pacific. Australia has the best brand, uh, you know, kangaroos, beaches and so on. Uh, New Zealand, mountains, snow, sheep. Earthquakes, right. Um, then it's Japan, then it's Singapore. And India does very well on three things that you might expect. Authenticity, so it's a real experience. History, uh, both of which it ranks second. And art and culture, for, for obvious reasons. The problem is that set against this, if we look at things like Transparency International's Global Perception, in, uh, Corruption Perception Index, India does pretty badly. 
It ranks only 84th on that particular index, and it has not improved in any noticeable way in the past decade. So, again, there's problems there that, that because of the perception of corruption, slowness of bureaucracy, and so on. And then there are other problems caused by popular culture, perceptions of India, perceptions of poverty in particular. The slumdog millionaire phenomenon is a considerable problem. And that's a problem for two reasons. One, because it, it highlights Indian poverty, and two, because it highlights communal violence. And the communal violence is something which is acknowledged to be by the federal government to be a, a real problem, not just in terms of the violence itself, but a problem in terms of the way that India is perceived from outside. So if you look at the, it's not just Hindu-Muslim violence, but the, also the anti-Christian violence in Orissa in, 19, in 2008 caused significant problems. And there's government responses to things like even the actions in Ayodhya back in, in 1992, of which there's been a lot of discussion in the international media, the government is very conscious of the fact that this is harming India's reputation abroad and trying to deal with this. There's a, we've reintroduced into, into the lower house of parliament the communal violence bill. Um, it was first debated in 2005, and the object here is, is to actually improve India's image as much as it is to deal with the victims of, of these violence, to deal with the perpetrators. All right, so we've got a kind of mixed perception, and that's the big, big problem. Now, the last thing, of course, is the, is the diplomatic importance. And here I think that India is important, and I think it's in, important, as I said before, not because India's natural weight is taking it over the line, but rather because it's been handed a series of things, handed a series of positions that it's by others, which it's been allowed then to, to hold. Now, in the early 1990s, India found itself almost completely isolated in diplomatic terms. It lost its major ally, the Soviet Union. Um, the rapid rise of China got it extremely worried. I talked to the Indian people in Delhi in think tanks, and I said to them, you know, what did you think about the rise of China? And one, of them, one, one person said, well, we never thought they'd get it together. <laughs> and then when they did, we were shocked <laughs> and really surprised. And there, so there was a great shock, I think, in the early 1990s, when the Soviet system collapses, when they're left diplomatically isolated, suddenly China, out of nowhere, having not really been perceived as being an issue, uh, it starts to, to rise in a very obvious way, and it looks like it's going to continue for a considerable period of time. And all of this emphasized India's um, comparative failure. This led to some real calls for a, for a new foreign policy. The first move was to, to look east. So it was to try and rebuild relations with Japan, China, and especially with Southeast Asia, the seeing Southeast Asia as being a source of um, some sort of strategic partnerships some, somewhere down the line as a source of investment and as a source of uh, support in terms of the fact that there's a considerable diaspora population uh, in those areas as well. So they can get remittances and so on. If you improve the relations with those countries, you can get more guest workers going and moving there and remittances coming back. And, and remittances are a considerable source of income, obviously. So there was all sorts of really good reasons to, to look east. And as a consequence of this shift, there was a kind of a sense in which the, the old policy, which was to say no to almost everything, shifted. And we saw a, a more positive attitude being taken in Indian diplomacy, a marked uh, tendency to say yes to a series of deals. Moving into the ASEAN Regional Forum in 1996 was, was actually more difficult for, for India than sometimes it's perceived from outside. Trying to negotiate the series of free trade agreements, which they've done over the last few years, has been quite painful. 
the free trade agreement with ASEAN, for example, the Indians are alleged to have turned up at the beginning with a list of something like three or 4,000 items which they wanted excluded from this supposedly free trade agreement. Uh, and they were told to go back to the table, go back and, and, and rethink that stance and whittle that list down. And, and they did, down to a few hundred rather than just a few thousand. There are also sort of significant bilateral agreements which have been formed. The strategic partnership, strategic and global partnership, as it's known with Japan in 2006, is important, not least because Japan only has those such agreements with the United States and Australia, and now also with India. It's providing much more dialogue and cooperation on security issues, joint military exercises and so on are in the offing. There's a lot of defense diplomacy going on between the two powers. Uh, regular political meetings, cabinet ministers moving over and talking to their counterparts and so on. So this has also led to some, some considerable investment as well. But where there's a real change is in the relationship with the United States. And here the relationship has not so much been improved because of what India has done, but because of the United States. Look, the odd thing I think about Bush, W in the end, is going to be that, that the, the one positive thing he probably did in international relations is, has been to, to dramatically shift U.S. policy on, on India. And that's the one thing where you can see a consistent line being pushed and where you can see some positive, hopefully positive, results coming out. Post-2001, what we see is the Americans going to India and trying to build a, a much firmer, stronger relationship there. And they're doing it essentially because they're betting that India, as it rises, will come out right. They're not doing it because, they, because they're getting good signs at the time. They're, getting it, they're making, taking a punt on India performing the way that it wants to perform. And what we see then is the nuclear agreement in 2005, which is where the U.S. takes the lead on essentially bringing India into, back into the fold on nuclear weapons and on civilian nuclear energy. And then, if you look at Obama's nuclear strategy, uh, sorry, if you look at Obama's national security strategy in 2010, we see a continuance of this general trend of the United States identifying India as a key partner in international affairs. So in May, in May 2010, this national security strategy comes out, and India is paired throughout with China, alongside China. Uh, every time China's name is mentioned, India's name is also mentioned at the same time. It's identified alongside Russia as a key center of influence. That's the, the term that gets used in contemporary global affairs. The document argues that building cooperative relationships with those three powers, with Russia, China, and India, is a major U.S. priority. And, but it singles out India for particular praise. So the, the document is not terribly nice about China um, and is mild about Russia, but it's very strongly uh, positive about India. It singles out India's, quote, responsible advancement as a, quote, positive example for developing nations. Here we've got the key thing, this American perception that India is some kind of model to its own region and that it can serve as that model going into the future. And it concludes its discussion of India by noting how much the United States values its leadership in forums such as the G20. Now, the, this phrase is all well meant and, and I think genuine. But the question is whether India is able on the foot to play that role, and secondly, is it willing to do it? On the ability thing, India's diplomatic capabilities are very limited. It has, obviously, a, for a country of over a billion people and a country aspiring to great power status, it has a tiny diplomatic service. The Indian Foreign Service numbers about 700 people. 
and that's 700 people in New Delhi and spread out throughout the embassies abroad. You've got another 2,800 Indian and, and local support staff helping out. Just to give you a, a point of comparison, the UK has 3,500 3 professional officers and uh, another 3,000 local staff or uh, other staff in other grades. So it has a, it's about 6,000 people, whereas India has really half that. And that is a very significant problem because it means that in, in some major embassies you've perhaps only got one member of the Indian Foreign Service or maybe two or three uh, at most. And the rest of the people who are going to be in that mission will be local staff or there will be people on other grades who are there to do consular or other kinds of tasks. So that kind of capacity is a real problem. Then there's also the issue about the, the quality and the training of those officers as well. Although considerable efforts have been made to improve this this software, as they say, of Indian uh, international relations, there's, it's not clear that this is having a great effect. There's a lot of drag from the older officers who don't want to see more people going through the system, don't want to dilute the quality as they see it, uh, they don't want to um, modernize the service. So, for example, there's no secure means of electronic communication, like email, between Indian missions abroad. So that's a very big problem. Uh, which needs to be overcome. So, okay. The other question is a question of will rather than means. There's a, oh, there is actually just a great fear about, about cyber security anyway. I mean, the, um, the Indian Secret Intelligence Service is not on the Internet, has no connections to the Internet. The building itself has no connections to the Internet. There's just fears Chinese hacking too much to be anywhere near it. So the building itself is, is completely secure from these things. Okay. So... The question is a question of, of will. What we're seeing is a, is a debate, a major debate that's going on in, in New Delhi itself between those, principally those people who are American educated, American trained and have American preferences, who believe that India should step up and become a, a great power like any other great power, that it should become a sort of, a kind of a power maximizer but with some responsibility as well. So it actually is a responsible, uh, realist power. Then you've got people who are educated principally in the UK and in India itself who take a different view, that would rather cleave to the old traditional view of India as, as a, a great moral power rather than a great military power or a great political power. You can see this in the literature as it, run, uh, it has come out over the last few years. You can see this clash going on within the elite itself. In the US... The old-fashioned views are simply dismissed as symptoms of what a recent RAND report called a post-colonial syndrome. This is, I think, a really big misdiagnosis. It shows how much the United States has bet on India behaving the way its theories predict. Uh, and it shows how much it may have underestimated the persistence of older attitudes. There are older attitudes, but there may be better attitudes, I don't know. That persistence can be seen in a number of stances where India has been very keen to take an independent stance on an issue, even though it may be, in our eyes, deeply wrong or problematic. Two issues stand out. The first one is Iran. Read, you just have to read the editorials in Indian newspapers to see just how much India is keen to defend Iran from its critics. It is... Although India has long been an advocate of nuclear non-proliferation, of denuclearization, in fact, it is still 
very keen to shield Iran from criticism from the outside and it has been very critical of sanctions that have been placed on the Iranians. It's doing that partly because it sees, it sees some of itself in Iran, I suspect, but it's doing that also because it feels that it has to take an independent stance. That independent stance is really important. To take a stance which is diametrically opposed to the United States is a critically important thing to do. The other one, which is, more, which is a more mixed example of this sort of tendency, is the Burmese example. It's more mixed because there, I think, strategic questions are more uh, wrapped up in this. There are many more mixed motives. In the Burmese case, the support for the Burmese regime, Tan Shui was in New Delhi a month or a month and a half ago, just before David Cameron came along, and New Delhi was bedecked in Burmese flags and welcomed Tan Shui uh, banners and so on, which were all just taken down just before David Cameron turned up. Um, the support for the regime there is partly to do with this independent line, but it's also partly to do with simple and straightforward strategic competition with China. It's just very worried about China building things in Burma, in building roads, supplying the regime and so on, and it's worried that Burma will simply move over into the Chinese camp uh, more so than it already is. So India's relationship with Iran has been described by uh, former diplomats as a litmus test of India's willingness and ability to follow an independent foreign policy. Now this, in a sense, wouldn't really matter if India didn't now play a key position, if it hadn't in fact been given a position as a veto player in so many things. Um, it's been given a significant role to play in the G20. It was also given effectively a significant role to play at Copenhagen. To many Indian, Indian observers, the blocking of Western attempts to impose binding targets on carbon emissions was a triumph of Indian diplomacy. It was, it was a triumph of Indian diplomacy, and it was a triumph especially in its dealings with China. It was India, this I'm quoting from one of the newspaper editorials at the time, who saved China from isolation at Copenhagen and prevented them from being cajoled into a deal that they didn't want and that would not be good for the developing world. And this ushered in the quotes, new Copenhagen spirit uh, in Sino-Indian relations. As Jairam Ramesh, the Indian Environment Minister, put it, just as we mark BC as the beginning of a new age, so too in India-China ties there is BC, before Copenhagen and after. Now, India was allowed, to, along with China and along with some other states as well, was allowed to, to engage in this behavior. It was allowed to, um, to, to play a very significant role in getting together a coalition. It was allowed to, to walk into the room with China and to, to do a deal which was clearly detrimental to, well, not clearly, to American perceptions at the time detrimental to American interests and also detrimental to Kevin Rudd's interests and to European interests as well. Now, just how long this, news, this Copenhagen spirit is going to last um, is unclear. But what is clear is this tendency to act in an independent way, this apparent perversity about doing the precise opposite to what is being required of it, or what, what is expected of it by the United States. So India matters because it has that soft power. India matters because it has a major and rising economy. India matters because its military is strong and it is preponderant in the region and it does have many problems and, and many problems that it can solve in, that, in the region as well, in South Asia. But the big question is how to deal with this 
this tendency, this willingness to act in an independent way. The question is, how do you go about engaging India to make it, to bring it into processes of global governance that will be good for all? How can you convince India that having a stake in the system is actually a good thing to have? And how do you convince it then to, to move in, in that direction? My view is this, and for what it's worth, I want to sort of work it out, but I haven't worked it out yet. My view is that the problem here is that India's own philosophy of international relations, the views of the elite themselves, are not being taken sufficiently seriously. And the perception in that elite is that they are not being taken seriously. They're not being taken seriously by the Americans, they're not being taken seriously by anybody else, and the, this independent line is a function of that sense that they're not really believed when they say that they want to act as a conscience keeper of the world, as one of these former diplomats has said. Because the assumption is that they will behave as any other great power does, all of these sorts of ideas, these philosophies, these convictions are simply swept aside as Machiavellian cloaks covering up their true intentions, and their true intentions are interpreted to be acting like any other great power. The issue for me, I think, is that if you're going to engage India effectively, you've got to take those ideas seriously. Um, and you've got to at least acknowledge that they may be driving some of the policy decisions that are being made. So that's not quite why India matters, but that might be how to deal with India in a more effective way than it has been dealt with so far. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.